Why don't we spend a second this morning, and as we lift up our prayers, ask the Lord to speak to us, ask Him to communicate to us. Then let's take a second, let's just pray for each other. Pray for the community gathered, those not here today. Father, we lift up our prayers as one body, as one group of people, as your children, as believers, as followers. And as we pray, we, we put our trust in you, knowing that you have a loving hand on all of our circumstances. You have your loving hand over and under and around those whom we love, those who are struggling. And we pray that your scriptures would come alive today once more, that we would hear from you and be moved closer to you. It's in your son's name we pray all these things. Amen. So it was a big week for me this last week. On Monday, I turned 29, which is officially, yeah, the journey is called the last year until I'm old, um, which is not meant to be an offense to those of you who are old. It's just that I'm still young. Um, And then on Wednesday, we celebrated, Lindsay and I, our one and a half year anniversary. It's a pretty big deal. The word heroic has been thrown around. Um, I was thinking about it, and I was thinking, like, when you've only been married a short time, you have, like, anniversaries. It's kind of like going to, like, a high school graduation. They're all, like, celebrating and cheering, and you're like, high school, how'd you do it, right? Like, we all have high school degrees, but it's a small little stepping stone that everyone has to kind of get through and, and go through. And in marriage, as most of you know, you learn a lot. It's a, like a, a crash course in communications, uh, 101, how to communicate. There's lots of things that we think people can read inside of our minds, which apparently they cannot. It causes lots of frustration. You've got to learn how you communicate, how you receive um, certain languages and certain messages and things like that. And today in our scripture passage, I want to take a look at how the scriptures paint the portrait of God communicating to us. What kind of communication does God give us and, and how should we receive it? What kind of people should we be because of it? And so if you would turn with me to Psalm chapter 19. One of my favorite Psalms in the book of the Psalter, the collection of Israel's wisest, most famous songs. A lot of people have said Psalm 19 serves as the heartbeat of the Psalter of all 150 Psalms. It has all the themes in this beautifully condensed poem um, it is very similar to Psalm 119, which is a much longer psalm. It's the longest book of the Bible. Um, and it is a love letter to the law, to God's communication in terms of the Torah, God's instructions for how to live and how to live wisely. C.S. Lewis, who before he became a theologian, was a Christian, was a literary critic. So he read uh, ancient literature and and analyzed it. He, he could tell a good poem from a bad poem and good writing from bad writing. He is very famously quoted for saying that he takes Psalm 19 to be the greatest poem in the Psalter and one of the greatest lyrics in the world. 
the poetry of it just by itself, if you're that kind of a person who likes to analyze poetry and read poetry, is breathtaking. It's beautiful. There's a lot um, very powerfully condensed into this one poem. So we read together Psalm 19, verse 1. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. For there is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out into the earth, and their words to the end of the world. In them he has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom, leaving his chamber. And like a strong man runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the ends of the heavens, and its circuit to the end of them. And there is nothing hidden from its heat. Verse 7, the law of the Lord is perfect. Reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey. And drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned, and keeping with them there is great reward. Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgressions. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and redeemer. What you find in this poem is that the, the author, the poet, the artist is going to move in three directions. There's going to be three movements. He's painting a pretty broad picture and he has three brushstrokes to do so. And he starts um, by talking about the communication of God through nature, through creation. He says a, a message is being sent out 24-7, seven days a week. A message about who God is. The heavens, he says, declare the glory of God. The sky proclaims his handiwork. Day by day and night by night, we can look out into creation and we are being bombarded with a message about who God is. It reveals knowledge to us. It it might be translated as well as wisdom. God's wisdom is being revealed to us for how creation should work, how it was set up to run. His nature is being revealed to us. We should be able to look at creation and tell that God is a God of beauty, that God is an artist. We should be able to look at the complexity of life around us and tell that God is creative and complex. In a sense, the world here for the psalmist is God's classroom. And as soon as you step outside of these doors, you've entered into his classroom. And for those with ears to hear and eyes to listen, there's a message being poured forth constantly over and over and over and over again. We should be able, the psalmist says, to go outside, to to be in nature, to be in relationships with one another, to live as creatures and realize that God is playful and joyful and gives good gifts. We should be able to realize on our own by looking at the world around us and the people around us that much of what we have is pure gift. It's not worked for, it was not earned. 
We might have worked very hard in our jobs, but we did not pick where we were born, where our parents would send us to school or be able to afford us to go. We did not pick to have the ability to have that hard work ethic. I mean, in some people, those things just aren't there. There's all kinds of things that can go wrong. There's medical problems. There's psychological problems. We realize that the world is a playful place. God is a God of joy and God is a God of good gifts. Creation is God's classroom in a sense is also his playground. If you think about play, I read a really interesting book about play, the act of playing. And, and the premise of the book, who, who's a, a neuroscientist and he's been studying play for, for 20, 30 years, is that all human beings need play. Play helps us survive. Play actually makes us smarter. It increases our social skills. So as a kid, when you're playing on the playground, you are testing what's available or what's not. You know when you've gone too far. You see two dogs playing, right? And all of a sudden, one of them yelps and says, nope, that was too hard. And they recalibrate. All of this play sets us up for the real world. And he'll go into companies that are failing or people who are depressed and miserable, and he'll look at their life and he'll say, you're not playing at all. Everything is dull and gray for you. Where is that that moment in your life where you're doing something fun just because it's fun? There's no end game. Where is that moment where you forget about time being passed? This is why inherently most of us enjoy being around kids. Now, we might have an age group that is a little bit better suited to our personalities, but for the most part, kids bring out the playfulness in us. I know this is true for me. When I hang out with boring old adults, my life gets kind of gray and boring. And when I hang out with high schoolers, it's funny and adventurous. It's playful. And play actually reflects a lot about God's creation. You think of sports, it's kind of the subspecies of play. A sport or really any type of play is an unnecessary but meaningful act. Which is to say, without play, theoretically, you'll survive. It's an essential need. Now, this guy might argue evolutionarily, biologically, this is how we um, became such evolved creatures with such social um, interactions available to us. Because we are actually our brains play for much longer than many other species of animals. But you could not play for a few years and, and you'd be fine. You could not play a sport for years and you'd be fine. Um, but it's, it's unnecessary, but it's meaningful. It affects big positives in your life, in your heart, in your mind, in your relationships. And essentially, that's what creation is. It's an unnecessary act. God didn't need to create the world with all of the joys and beauties that it has. But he did, and it's meaningful And he interacts with his creation. And the first way the psalmist says he does this in his first movement is all of creation, everything that exists, points towards his glory. Now there's two problems with this form of communication. The first problem is that because we have sinned and death has entered into the world, there are ugly stains in creation. So you can look out the window and see something that does not reflect God's character. You can see a an act of terror. You can see a sickness. And for some, that's something to struggle with. 
if God is the creator of all things, then why are there so many ugly things out there? Christians would say that that's not part of the creation itself. This is the distortion of the creation. The scholar I love says, when you see a sick or injured child, you don't see the face of God, you see the face of his enemy. That picture does not reflect God's nature and character. It does in a negative sense. It shows you what God does not desire. It shows you what his enemy, death, Satan, evil, has brought into his creation. And only by flipping it do you come back to God's glory, what he intended. The second problem with this type of creation, natural um, revelation, with this type of communication, is it's nonverbal. You see this here in the, the first movement of the psalm. They're speaking and they're speaking, but no words are going out. The voice is heard all throughout the world, but then you've got these stains that pop up and it gets really confusing for people. And so the second movement starts in verse 7. Verse 7 to 11, you have the second movement and there's no transition and the psalmist ramps things up from 0 to 100 real fast. Verse 7, the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. Watch how many lines there are that are just parallel. The words are just synonyms. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The command of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned, and keeping them there is great reward. So here we have a new kind of revelation, a new kind of speech God is giving to his people. It's not this inaudible speech from creation, 24-7, always coming through the airwaves. It's a verbal speech. God steps down close to our ears and speaks and writes and reveals himself to us. A couple things to, to pay attention to in the psalm, when you see the word LORD in all caps, this is an indication for English readers that this is the Hebrew word for Yahweh, God's personal name. Look in the first movement of the psalm in, in verse 1 through 6. How many times do you see the word God? Thank you, Zach. The math guy. <laughs> Just one time. And it's just God. Because the Hebrew here is the generic form for God. El, Elohim. All the people in ancient Near East would have called their God by that name. But the God of the Israelites, when he came to make a covenant with them, when he came to reveal himself to them in Exodus 3, gave him them their personal name. This personal name. It would be like your boss inviting you in and, and telling you his nickname or inviting you to his house. It's a closer form of revelation, of communication. You're brought into a relationship. So it goes from God speaking in creation to now the law or the Torah, God's spoken word to us. And all of a sudden when you get the spoken word, you get Yahweh, 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 Yahweh. You get an overwhelming flood of who God is, the God committed to his creation in covenant with his people. The God who says, I am Yahweh and you are my people. And I will be your God. 
and the Torah for the, the Jewish people is not just this imperfect, it's not just this arbitrary law that they break. The Jewish people celebrated the Torah. It was not a burden for them, the instructions of the Lord. It was the revelation of God for them. It was the wisdom of God for how they should live in their lives. Psalm 119 that we talked about is just this very long, erotic, romantic poem about the law. I do a little writing. I don't do that type of writing. It's a different, it's a different genre. There are texts actually in the ancient um, Jewish world that speak of the Torah at times as if it were an actual person. It's personalized. You see this in our Bibles. If you were to flip to Proverbs chapter 8, we're told that wisdom actually accomplishes creation on the part of God, on the part of Yahweh. And Christians have always seen that and said, that's Jesus. There was another person present. First Corinthians tells us Jesus is the wisdom of God. Creation was created in his image, in his nature and character, for his glory and purpose. And the early Christians see this Torah and they see it personalized in Jesus. They see Jesus as the clearest, most full revelation of who God is, what he's like of what he wants to say to us, reveal to us, what kind of life he wants us to live. We're in the Sermon on the Mount right now, and so we have a scene that we're studying where Jesus is standing on a mountain giving instructions. And he's very deliberately echoing Moses giving the Torah. But he's actually, in a sense, saying, I am the living Torah. You've heard it said, but I will say right now, there's a, a, a really fascinating story about this. Two scholars, a rabbi, an Orthodox classical Jewish rabbi, and a Christian scholar. And, and they're writing on the book of Matthew. And they're going back and forth and making very interesting observations. And they go, foundationally, we both agree on the message of Matthew. Jesus is the embodied Torah. Jesus is greater than the new Moses. Jesus, in a sense, embodily replaces and enhances and reveals the, the Torah's intent. The Jewish guy just said, I just don't agree with it. But I see it there in Matthew. Yeah, that's what, that's what it means there in Matthew. Jesus is this revelation. He is this word revealed to us. And notice what this word does. Notice the life it brings. It, it's perfect. It revives the soul. I don't know if you've been in a situation like this. I have where, where I'm just starting to wilt away on the inside. I'm starting to, to kind of slowly die in a situation. And all of a sudden I think of a, a passage of scripture. I think of who Jesus is, a story about Jesus, or I sit down to study the scriptures, or I hear a sermon or a worship song, and all of a sudden my soul starts to become revived. There's this weird sense where I'm starting to become alive again in this situation. And I'm no longer overwhelmed and being crushed and being defeated by it. I'm starting to stand up strong with peace and with joy and with courage, knowing whose God I am. It brings joy to our hearts. It enlightens our eyes. And it's important. It's more desired than gold, sweeter than honey. That's a big claim. The word of God is more important than money or honey. If you've got an option of a six-figure check on one side and the Word of God on the other side. This passage of Scripture says, if you're perceiving rightly, 
you easily understand which is worth more. Hearing and understanding and participating in the Word of God. If you've got a bunch of honey, you're just a big beekeeper, something else that's sweet, and you've got the Word of God, he says it's not a choice. Your, your appetite can't outweigh the beauty, the reward that comes from God's self-verbal, close, intimate, covenantal revelation to us. And then you get a surprise move. Here's the third movement in the psalm. All of a sudden, a new voice speaks. It's not a narrator talking about God's communication. In verse 12, Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. All of a sudden, the poet is now speaking. You've had the communication of creation about God, the communication of God himself, and now hearing and reflecting upon that communication, the poet starts to communicate back. The poet enters into a relationship. Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them have no dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgressions. Verse 14, what a verse to memorize. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight. O Yahweh, my rock and my redeemer. This is ultimately the goal of God's communication. For his creation to hear, receive, be transformed, and reflect this love back to God. To be transformed by the word of God. And say, keep me innocent. Free me from the dominion of my transgressions, from the slavery of them. Let the words of my mouth, the meditation of my heart, let that be where it's supposed to be. If you're anything like me, that's a prayer you might need to pray many times a day. Words of my mouth often probably aren't acceptable. The, the meditations of my heart probably aren't what I want to bring to the throne. Well, the psalmist humbly prays this, knowing that Yahweh is not just his God, but feel the emphasis on these pronouns here. He's my rock. He's my safe place. He's my refuge. He's my redeemer. He's my God. He's my savior. He's brought me out of the pits of death and hell. He's delivered me from sin. He's given me the gift of life through the Spirit. In a sense, the psalmist embodies the successful mission, project, campaign of God's word. It goes out to seek human hearts who will listen, be transformed, and respond. And the psalmist does so. And so now, if you, if you look at the psalm, you've got now three messages going out into the entire world about God. Creation is speaking at all times. It's a little muddied sometimes, but speaking 24-7. It's his classroom. And his written word, the Torah, and, and Jesus himself embodied, is revealing to all people who God is. This is who I am. This is what I want. This is my character and nature. And now you've got a community of people who also say, my rock and my redeemer the one who has come and saved me, the one who has put me in covenant with him. He is my God and I am a part of his people. And so the question this morning is, has God's communication to us been successful? 
is it resulted in us prayerfully and humbly seeking the transformation of our lives? Has it resulted in us adding to the praise, to the glory, to the witness, to who God is? In a sense, it's a a missional psalm. Not only should God's word be speaking about who God is, not only should creation be leading people to think and dwell about God's character and nature, but there should be groups and communities of people out there who, who add a message who point back towards the embodied Torah, Word of God, who stand together in song and say, my rock and my redeemer. But like we all know, communication gets messy. You get distracted. You start to tune something out. So this morning we we ask, are you listening? Are we listening as a church, as individuals? Will we let this prayer be our prayer? George Herbert once said that prayer is the breath of God returning back to God. And the psalmist says, let my meditations and my words be acceptable to you. That's the breath that God has given him being given back to God. That's what praying is. It's responding to God's response to you. God's a gift of life to you. Will we listen? Will we pay attention? Will we dig in and lean in? And then we'll be transformed. Will we be able to praise? Will we be able to add our words to the communication of the beauty and glory of God? Let's pray together. Father, we love you. And we give you thanks for all of the many diverse ways that you come to speak to us. Sometimes in a small, quiet voice. Sometimes in a dramatic way. Help us to, to be a people who are always listening. Help us to be a people who dig into your word. You don't just read your word, but study it and live it. Feel it. Help us to be a people who respond to your spirit. Help us be a people who grow and grow together and grow outward towards those who do not yet know you. And in all of it, we pray that we would glorify you as we seek to worship and to make disciples. It's in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit that all God's people prayed, saying, Amen.